Good morning. Everybody okay? You guys good? Good. Okay, well, we don't have time. We had a lot of ground to cover today, so we don't have time for one of my hilarious anecdotes or jokes today. But, right. So, uh, <laughs> to make up for it, though, if you got a handout when you walked in, I put a map in there. That's equal to a good joke, I think. I don't know, in some universe. But uh, I put that map in there. Um, when I say I put that in there, I told the people who put the maps in there, hey, can we please have a map in there? And they did it, so I can't take credit for that. But um, that map is in there because I, I noticed this week's lesson, we're going to finish up chapter four, do a little bit of chapter five. There's a lot of geographical places named, and, and the majority of us have not been to Israel. And even if we have, we may not always have the geography really, really solid in our minds. So if you kind of nerd out on stuff like that, I like maps. I kind of like to know where I'm talking about. I have a huge magnetic map in my office of all the places I've been in the world. I just, I like maps. Um, it's an easy way. You can keep it, go back, reference it. Okay, so when he goes to Cana, where is Cana? He's leaving from Judea, going to Galilee. What does that mean? So the, the tricky thing, and I didn't say this at any of the other three services because I just didn't think about it. Sometimes in the Bible, if it says they went down somewhere or up somewhere, that's not talking, talking about north and south. It's literally talking about sea level. So sometimes it will say they go up to Jerusalem, even though they're coming south, but, but it's up on a high plain. So you'd have to get, so anyways, that gets confusing. Shouldn't have said that. Maybe that's why I didn't say it in the other three services, just because it convolutes things. But anyways, in that time, I could have told a good joke and I, I didn't, but so we are, someone booed me over here. So we are, <laughs> we are working through the gospel of John. If you've never been here, this is what we do. We go through whole books of the Bible, chapter by chapter, line by line until we, until we finish the whole thing. Um, we did about three-fourths of chapter four last week, which has a very famous story about a woman at a well. She was a, a Samaritan woman from Samaria. And if you don't know what the implications of that are, the, the Jews and the Samaritans, uh, people from Samaria, uh, they didn't get along with each other. There was a racial divide. They believed in the same God. There was a historical divide that went back about eight centuries and so what happens in chapter four is not Jesus so much, but this woman is put in a very uncomfortable situation to where she has to come to grips with her sin because Jesus kind of, kind of brings it up. And so we asked ourselves uh, the same question, but in two different ways last week. The first way that we asked it is, we, are we willing to get uncomfortable personally with our sin? What I mean by that is, when, when we confront God or when God confronts us or when the word of God confronts us, are we willing to get uncomfortable and say, I've sinned, I've done things I shouldn't do. I know that I don't need to do those things. I know that I need to change and ask for forgiveness. Are we willing to go to that place? The other, the other way we kind of ask this question is, if we are Christians, are we willing to get uncomfortable and build relationships with people who are vastly different from us? Maybe people who believe differently or vote differently or look differently or believe in um, spiritual things differently than we do. Are we willing to get uncomfortable? Because it's easy to hang around with people that are like you. It can sometimes be very uncomfortable to hang around with people who are not like you. But are we willing to do that for the sake of those people eventually knowing Jesus Christ, hopefully? That's what we talked about last week. This week, we're gonna talk about something very different but very important. Where we're gonna start this week, it begins with this, this conversation of honor, and we are gonna end with a conversation about honor, both from Jesus. So I took this in, in all of my intelligence as a sign that maybe we should talk about honor this weekend. The, the, I mean that facetiously, but the, the other thing is, is honor seems to be something that is completely absent in American culture right now. So it would be interesting for us to talk about, are we honorable people? And if you don't know what that means, uh, we'll define it. And then we'll ask a couple of questions to maybe kind of self-assess, would, would we consider ourselves to be honorable people? Okay, so you should have got a notes hand out when you walked in, has everything I'm gonna say in there and a nice little handy map. Everything will be on the screens. If you have the Experience Community app, just click on Sermon Notes, everything is right there. If you have a Bible, we're in the fourth book of the New Testament, written by one of the 12 disciples of Jesus Christ in the first century. This is the Gospel of John, primarily about the three and a half years that Jesus did ministry. And um, we are in chapter four, we're starting in verse 43. So I'm gonna pray, we'll jump into this. And there are some really, really interesting things in this, in this portion of scripture 
that we're gonna talk about today. Really fun stuff, okay? So let me pray. Father God, we love you. We thank you so much, Lord, for the, the, the opportunity and the space, God, to get to come and to hear and to worship you freely. Um, regardless of what part of our journey we're on, Lord, we're thankful, God, for the opportunity to, to study, Lord, and, and to have that freedom as well. God, we just pray that you bless this church this morning. We don't just pray for our church, though, Father. We pray for every church in our city that is teaching this book, Lord. We pray, God, for our other campuses and the churches in those cities. We pray for the wonderful nonprofits we get to work with. And Lord, most of all, and, and ironically, our topic today, we pray, God, that we honor you in how we live, that we get closer to you, God, through this study, through our worship, that we become honorable people. Lord, we love you. We thank you, we praise you, we pray all these things in your son's name, in, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, starting in verse 43 of chapter four. John writes, after two days, he left there for Galilee. Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. When they entered Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him because they had seen everything he did in Jerusalem during the festival for they also had gone to the festival. He went again to Cana of Galilee, where he turned the water into wine. There was a certain royal official there whose son was ill at Capernaum. When the man heard that Jesus had come from Judea into Galilee, he went to him and pleaded with him to come down and heal his son since he was about to die. Jesus told him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Sir, the official said to him, come down before my son dies. Go, Jesus told him, your son will live. And this is important. The man believed what Jesus said to him and departed. While he was still going down, his servants met him saying that his boy was alive. He asked them at what time he got better. Yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him, they answered. The father realized this was the very hour at which Jesus told him, your son will live. So he himself believed, along with his whole household. Now this was the second sign that Jesus performed after he had come from Judea to Galilee. So again, I told you, it kind of it begins with honor and ends with honor today. The first thing is John mentioned something that Jesus said, that a prophet has no honor in his own country. Now, what that is foreshadowing is the place where Jesus was least, least accepted was his hometown, where he should have been most accepted. Now, there were people in the area where he was from that did believe in him, but it says here that most of them believed because they had seen him do miraculous things. They had heard him teach, so they had to see, and then they believed. They just didn't believe because of his word, which we'll get to here in a second. So on his return to Cana, where it says he performed the miracle of water to wine, he bypasses his hometown, and there is a royal official who had a son who was about to die. He was deathly ill and he pleads to Jesus, hey, come down and heal my son. Now, if you have read the New Testament before and a couple of the other gospels, it mentions a Roman centurion. This is not the same person. The reason why we know that is the Roman centurion wanted his servant to be healed. This man wants his son to be healed. We also don't know if he is Roman. It doesn't say. It says a royal official. Maybe he was Roman, maybe he was a Jewish royal official. We, we don't know, and it really doesn't matter. What we do know is this. This man knew the reputation of Jesus, that he was a healer. Not only that, we knew that he was willing to travel 25 miles, and not by car, where it takes 20 minutes. He either walked or rode a horse this 25-mile distance to have this encounter and conversation with Jesus. So he finally sees Jesus, and the man pleads with Jesus, come heal my son. But Jesus doesn't even address the son, which is odd. What Jesus does instead is makes a statement about faith and not just the man's faith. We're gonna find out he actually has a lot of faith, but the faith of people in general. He says, unless you people see signs and wonders, you're not gonna believe. And what we're gonna start to see, we've already seen it earlier in chapter four. We're gonna see it more in chapter five 
is there is a pattern. And what Jesus is trying to get us to do is to look beyond this world and our kind of physical temporary selves and look beyond to the kingdom of God, the eternal. So over and over again, God is trying to push our thinking past our limited kind of myopic minds. That's a good word, isn't it? Myopic, you optometrists are like, get them, Corey. Anyways, our kind of nearsightedness to see beyond that. My sister-in-law is an optometrist. She's, she'd be very proud of me. And so Jesus is trying to get us to look further into the eternal. Well, some people would go, well, man, why is Jesus giving this guy a hard time? Just heal his son. Why is this a big deal? What's wrong with a little healing every now and then? Well, nothing, but here's the thing. The Bible says that we are more blessed if we believe without seeing, without signs and wonders. So, so what Jesus would prefer was would Jesus would want us to believe him based on his word, not on signs and wonders. And so look back on chapter four, if you go back earlier in chapter four than what I just read, all of the people in Samaria, they didn't see anything miraculous. A whole city came to know Jesus because of the message that came from his mouth, not because of the miraculous. B but look, isn't that the most miraculous thing anyways? Isn't the hope of eternal life the most miraculous thing we could ever long to see? So here's the balancing act in all this. We need to believe that God can still do the physically miraculous. I believe that. I have prayed for people who are sick and I've seen them get instantly healed. I've seen crazy miraculous stuff. Listen, I have also laid my hands on people with all faith believing they could be healed and they don't. And so God heals as he sees fit. But that is an, it is a very immature faith to say that we have to see signs and wonders to continue to believe. A mature Christian aspires for the healing of the soul. What we know is we understand that if we are going to live forever with God, the soul must be healed. So our greatest aspiration to be, should be to live a life of holiness, righteousness, and to set ourselves up, of course God does it, for us to be with Jesus for eternity. But, but here's the other thing about miracles. There are no superfluous miracles in the Bible. Two good words in the first like 15 minutes of me teaching. <laughs> I got a degree in English. I have to use it every once in a while. So there are no superfluous miracles in the Bible. What that means is every single time that God does something miraculous and, and even all of Jesus's miracles throughout the New Testament, there's a purpose behind it. I'm very skeptical if there's any religious movements or any churches that have these kind of fantastic things happen and there's no purpose behind it. I, you should be skeptical of that because that's not how Jesus works. So Jesus heals the official son, but it's more than just him healing an ill child. We, we continue to read and we see later on in the part that I just read, the whole healing of the child was for a greater healing purpose. The entire family gave their lives to Christ. So the point of every single miracle in the New Testament, in New Testament is to show the power of God and to advance the message of salvation about the kingdom of God. And here is another thing that the mature believer knows. Physical healing without the soul being saved is a loss. If we prayed that God heal every single physical ailment that is in this building right now, but we don't give our lives to Jesus Christ, we still lose. There was a documentary or a series of documentaries that came out years ago. And I mean, all these young people were like flipping out about it. These people are going around all over the country and all over the world and video cameras and they're praying for people and people are being miraculously healed. Everyone has two legs that are different lengths, you know, and, and I'm saying that facetiously. I don't think that's like a chronic problem in the world, but anyways, so they're going around and they're, and they're, they're praying for all these people and people are getting healed and they're saying, Jesus loves you. And then they walk away. And I'm like, well, yes, I believe Jesus loves them. And yes, I believe Jesus can miraculously heal. But if you have not taught them about repentance and sin and giving their life to Christ, you failed. You have lost. And so we need to remember that because this body, guys, is eventually gonna die. We all have an appointed time to die. But we are going to live for eternity either with Jesus or without. So notice this. The official just took Jesus's word for it. He didn't see anything miraculous. And this goes back to what we talked about. One of the major themes of the gospel of John is, it is not that seeing is believing. It is that when we believe, we see God work. 
And so the official went up to Jesus and Jesus said, it's done. His son was 25 miles away at least. So he didn't see anything, but he left and he went back and he was caught, right? And someone says, your son's okay. He had faith. And we get the definition of faith in Hebrews 11.1. 1. Faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. So we have to trust the word of God. And again, we have, to, we have to start learning to think eternally, right? In the eternal, in the spiritual, and less in the temporary. So after the official got home, he realized what, would ha what, what had happened. He completely gave his life to Jesus, and so did his entire family. And he walked 25 miles. Now listen, we don't have to walk 25 miles to, to have an encounter with Jesus, but we do have to put effort into our faith. Corey, are you saying we're saved by our effort? No, 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 you are saved by God's grace through faith, but in the light of that knowledge, we should want to put effort into a relationship with Jesus. We should want to put effort into that. You know what's interesting? Last week, and, and, and I'm gonna be careful with this because I'm not trying to knock any of our other congregations, Last week, I, we, I, every week, I just kind of look at the numbers and stuff. How many people come, you know, and, and, and are we growing? Are we shrinking? Are we leveling? Whatever. And do you know that when it rains, 17% of Christians in the United States will not go to church if it's raining? And so I looked at our churches and three of the four of them, not this campus, but the other, our other three campuses were down, not 17%, but, but we were down a little bit. And I asked the pastors, why do you think? And they said, Rain. Now listen, th th this, is, this is really bothersome. If we can't be committed, if almost two out of 10 Christians will not attend worship because they might get wet from the time they get from their car to the building, what in the heck are we gonna do when there's actual persecution? Amen. Do you know one of the signs of Jesus coming back is great, a great turning away? That's not hard to see. My Lord, if we can't even get wet for Jesus, would we walk 25 miles? Do we think, if it's too hard for us to be a Christian in 2023, do we think we can be a Christian in 2026? Heck, or 2024, that's an election year. Boy, everyone loses their salvation those years, <laughs> if you believe in such a thing. Well, let's just keep going. I, I, I belabored it too long, too long. I will brag on you guys. You guys are faithful. Our numbers did not go down. In fact, we were up a little bit last week. And, and parking here is like parking at Disney World. Some of, you had to par <laughs> Some of you had to park at a carpet factory like six blocks away and catch a bus. So thank you. You're a fantastic group. <laughs> after, <laughs> after this, a Jewish festival took place and Jesus went up to Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate in Jerusalem, there is a pool called Bethesda in Aramaic, which has five colonnades. Within these lay a large number of the disabled, blind, lame, paralyzed. One man was there who had been disabled for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and realized he had been there for a long time, he said to him, do you wanna get well? Sir, the disabled man answered, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred, but while I am coming, someone goes down ahead of me. Get up, Jesus told him. Pick up your mat and walk. And instantly the man got well, picked up his mat, and started to walk. So chapter five opens up in Jerusalem. So again, Jesus has traveled. There is another festival. John does not mention the specific festivals because I don't think he cares to. He's just trying to give us kind of mile markers. They were in Jerusalem, they were in the northeast corner of the city, and there was a pool called Bethesda. And it functioned, this is important, as a superstitious place where people thought they got miraculously healed. It was superstitious. More than likely, this was probably like a hot spring. It would occasionally bubble up. All the disabled would think that if they could get in there before everyone else, they would instantaneously be healed, but that was complete superstition. That was not a fact, that was not a real thing. Now, here's something interesting. If you noticed in your Bible, if you're reading along with me, it goes from verse three to verse five. There is no verse four in the majority of your Bibles unless you happen to have a King James Version Bible. The King James Version Bible, to my, to my knowledge, is the only version of the Bible that has 
verse four, and some people would go, look, see, I told you the King James Version is the most accurate. That's actually not true. The King James Version was translated in 1611, and they had limited manuscripts that had probably some stuff added in there later, including verse four here. Hundreds of years later, we found a more complete, I put newer manuscripts, they were older manuscripts, but we found them later on that were more complete, and that's where you get translations like the ESV, the CSB, the NIV, most translations after that, and they omit verses like that because they were not in the most complete text. That really, really offends some people when you say the KJV is actually not the most accurate. It's probably the most inaccurate besides some of the crazy ones that, you know, I don't know. I don't wanna go there. So 38 years. This man had been disabled 38 years. And Jesus walks up and asks him a, a, a pretty interesting question as someone who's been disabled for 38 years. He goes, do you wanna get better? And the man goes, well, yes but I can't get into the pool. When I try, people run past me and they get in there first. No one will help me get into the pool. And so he has not lost his heart. He still has hope. He still has this desire. After 38 years of not being able to walk, he still wants to be healed. And so we often say things like this to God. We say, God, I have been in this situation for a long time. When are you going to do something? or I have been suffering this long, when are you going to do something? And in this man's situation for 38 years, probably his entire life, he has been suffering. But in God's wisdom, he used, this is so important, he used a lifetime of suffering to not only teach this man an eternal lesson, but for thousands of years, people have learned from this situation that the answer to change is not through superstition. The answer to change is not through magic or not through some kind of new ageism. The answer to change is not even our own abilities. It has to be the power and grace of Jesus Christ. And we have been learning this lesson for thousands of years from this story. Jesus does not need a talisman, number three big words today. Jesus does not need a talisman to work. That means like a lucky charm, some kind of lucky thing. He doesn't need that. All we need is Jesus's word. All we need is to trust him for change to happen in our life. Now, again, look at how many interesting things today. The exact opposite of the royal official who had tons of faith, this guy didn't even have time to have faith. He's talking to Jesus, so all of a sudden Jesus goes, get up, walk. God didn't have time to, to build up faith. So, so this is interesting. Some people are saved and then delivered and changed. Other people are changed and delivered and then they're saved. And we see that just in these two parts where we're like, well, what the heck? God does it however God wants to do it. Look at how Paul was saved. You know, Saul, who eventually became Paul, he wasn't looking for Jesus. Jesus showed up, knocked him off of his horse and goes, you're working for me now? And that's what he did and wrote 70% of the New Testament. Now, again, I think we have choice in the matter, but Jesus, he works in us the way he wants to work in us. Now, that doesn't mean that we can be irresponsible. Though Jesus does not need our permission to do things in our life, we are still responsible for our choices. You know what that means? That means that we can be blessed and we can still be lost. Amen. Well, Corey, where do you get that from? Glad you asked. Jesus said this. Jesus said that the sun rises on the just and the unjust. You know what that means? That sometimes good things happen to bad people. And then if you continue to read, it says that it rains on the just and the unjust which means sometimes bad things happen to good people. That does not mean that we're lost. That doesn't mean that we don't have salvation. Or just because we're blessed doesn't mean that we have salvation. We can even be physically healed and still be lost. Again, the point is this. Jesus is trying to think beyond this life. He's trying to think in the greater spectrum of eternity, not just the temporary. And how do we know this? Let's read the next part. Now that day was on the Sabbath. And so the Jews, this isn't anti-Semitic, that means the Jewish uh, religious leaders, said to the man who had been healed, this is the Sabbath. The law prohibits you from picking up your mat. 
He replied, the man who made me well told me, pick up your mat and walk. Who is this man who told you pick up your mat and walk? They asked. But the man who was healed did not know who it was because Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. After this, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are healed. Do not sin anymore so that something worse doesn't happen to you. The man went and reported it to the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. Therefore, the Jews began persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. This is very interesting to me. The Jewish religious leaders didn't care that Jesus healed a man. They cared that he did it on the wrong day. He did it at the wrong time. Jesus healed this man on the Sabbath. The word Sabbath literally means to rest. And on the Sabbath day, which was Saturday to the Jews, they were not allowed to work in any way. Anything that even remotely looked like work, they were not allowed to do it. So this man who hasn't walked in 38 years has to get up and pick up his mat, because Jesus told him to, and to walk. Well, they saw that this man who had been healed was working. He was carrying his mat. This is the most legalistic thing maybe in the entire New Testament. And we go, what in the heck? Why all the fuss? Why do these religious leaders care so much about their rules? It's the same reason why we still do this today. Why do so many people prefer legalism? Because it is much easier to check off a box than it is to build a relationship. Do you hear me? Now, I know we can get a little cocky in here because we're in a non-denominational church and I don't have any shoes on this morning, so we can be like, we're not legalistic in here. Look, the guy's got no shoes on up there. But we can become, we can become legalistic about other things. We, become, we can become legalistic like, well, if I just go to church once a month, that's how much the average Christian goes to church. If I go to church once a month, I've checked off the box, I'm good. Well, if I just give money every once in a while, I'm good. Well, I fed a homeless guy one time, that's good. And we just kind of check those boxes off. You know what legalism does for us and the reason why we're so attracted to it is when we can check off a box, we can brag on how good we are. And building a relationship is a lot messier. So Jesus knew it was the Sabbath. <laughs> you gotta love Jesus. Jesus knew it was Saturday. He knew the religious leaders would get ticked and he knew all 39 laws about the Sabbath day. So why did he do it? Well, Jesus is God. He gave us the Sabbath day and he has the right to do with it whatever he pleases because it was a gift from God. Look at this. Mark chapter two tells us the Sabbath day was meant to be a blessing. The day of rest was meant to be a time of recharging and refreshing and renewal and, and, and rest, getting us filled up again. It's supposed to be a blessing. And you know what religion did? Religion took that blessing and made it a burden. So Jesus wanted to reset the Sabbath back to what it was originally supposed to be, a blessing for the people. So again, I find it just extremely interesting you have a man who hasn't walked in 30, 38 years, he's holding his mat, and the religious leaders are not looking at his legs, they're looking at the mat that he's carrying. Again, why? Because it wasn't about a relationship with a God, with God, it was about checking off their, their list, checking off their boxes. But again, the point of Christianity is not just checking off boxes, it's about a relationship with Jesus. Now. When we say that, people will take that out of context and be like, all right, there's no rules in Christianity. There are. There are rules. There are principles and teachings and commands that we are to follow. But the point of all those teachings and principles and commands that we are to follow are one, to protect us, and to two, help us build a better relationship with God. That is the whole point. If you're married in here, when you get married, they don't just give you like, okay, here are 15 things that you have to do with your wife every single week. If you just do these, you'll be fine. Talk to her for 30 minutes, check. You know, and then it's 32 minutes and you're like, uh, already did my 30 minutes. See how that goes, right? That's not a relationship. It's legalism. And this is also extremely important. Going back to the documentaries where everyone gets healed but no one repents of their sin. That is not biblical. 
So after the commotion had subsided, Jesus finds the man because here, quite frankly, Jesus cares more about this man's eternal soul than he cares about his legs. And he said, listen, you're well. I've proven to you who I am. Stop sinning. Stop living a sinful lifestyle because if you don't, something worse than being paralyzed is going to happen to you. So the Bible says, first and foremost, Jesus came to save sinners. First and foremost, that is the primary function of Jesus's, uh, uh, his coming to earth was to save sinners. So if Jesus's primary function is to save us from sin, which eventually destroys us, we should not be flirting with sin as Christians. We should not make excuses for sin. We should not try to justify sin. Well, God's gracious. Well, Paul would say you're full of crap because that does not give us the license to continue to sin. Should we sin more so grace abounds? Paul says, no. We should despise sin. We should be disgusted by it. We should hate it. We should repent for it when we do it. And we should take every step possible to get away from it. This is what Jesus is saving us from. And unfortunately, there are way too many Christians where maybe they haven't crossed that line yet, but they get way too close. And you need to move away from those things because it's gonna hurt you. It's gonna destroy you. Now, here's another interesting thing, right? Blowing your minds this morning. Notice this. The man who got instantly healed after 38 years, it is not recorded that he ever thanks Jesus. You know what is recorded? That he ratted Jesus out. Is that not interesting? He doesn't say, oh, thank you for doing this. I got your back. No, no, no. He runs straight to the Jewish religious leaders and says, it was this guy over here. So he might have done that out of fear. He might have just like taken his healing for granted. He might have been selfish or entitled. And when I first read this and studied this, it's very easy for us to go, man, what a punk. This guy is healed by Christ, doesn't thank him, and then goes and rats him out, turns his back on him. And then I think, Corey, how many times has God blessed you only for you to feel like you didn't get as much as you wanted, or you were selfish, or maybe you lived out of fear? We have all been the guy who has been miraculously touched and then almost instantly forgot what God has done for us. We have all been this individual, okay? Now, Jesus is talking to uh, uh, the religious leaders. Jesus responded to them, my father is still working and I am working also. This is why the Jews began trying all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father and making himself equal to God. Jesus replied, truly I tell you, the son is not able to do anything on his own, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son likewise does these things. For the father loves the son and shows him everything he is doing and he will show him greater works than these so that you will be amazed. And just as the father raises the dead, and gives them life, so the Son also gives life to whom he wants. The Father, in fact, judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, so that all people may honor, there's that word, the Son just as they honor the Father. Anyone who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So someone working on the Sabbath was, was basically saying they were above the law. So if you were doing work, whatever the work was, and you were, not, you were not following the laws of the Sabbath, you were basically saying to everyone around you, I'm above those laws. The only person who could be above the laws of the Sabbath would be the creator of the Sabbath, God. So when Jesus worked on the Sabbath, he was essentially saying to everyone around him, I am God. So Jesus performing miraculous works on the Sabbath was good because it was, he was reestablishing what the Sabbath was supposed to be. He was changing its significance back to what it was, it was originally supposed to be. Again, a blessing, not a burden, a time of rest, not a time of, of stress. And so he was bringing it back to what it was supposed to be. What is odd though about Christianity in 2023 in the United States 
is we can still be like the Pharisees, the Jewish religious people, when it comes to the Sabbath. Now, Christians, most Christians, say if you do not worship on Sunday, it is wrong. And then you have some Christian sects, like, like Seventh-day Adventists, who say, no, 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 it's Saturday. And the Jews still say, it's Saturday. And the reason why we as, as Christians, most of us worship on Sunday is because the resurrection was on a Sunday. So we believe that's the new Sabbath. The whole point of the Sabbath was not a specific day. That goes against other scripture in the New Testament, and I don't believe scripture contradicts itself. So what does it mean? What it means to honor the Sabbath is the principle of Sabbath, which means we intentionally take a time, we rest, we worship God, we sit maybe in quiet solitude or whatever the case may be, that we intentionally have a lifestyle to where we set that time aside to rest, focus on God, worship Him, and recharge. If it was so legalistic, which is called Sabbatarianism, if it was so legalistic that it had to be a Saturday or Sunday, all of us that work for a church would be in bad shape. We, we work eight hours on Saturday and eight hours on Sunday. So that wouldn't work out well for us. My Sabbath is on a Friday. It's the only day I have off. It's the time I spend with my wife. I pick up one of my kids from school and we go get ice cream every Friday. It's a time where I get to read whatever I want. That's my Sabbath. It's not the particular day that matters. It is a lifestyle of Sabbath. And then verse 20 through 23, is basically kind of a synopsis or, or, or Jesus kind of giving a, a, broad, a broad perspective of these things. That all authority of what is right and wrong lies with Jesus. All power comes from Jesus. Jesus even says that, that God the Father isn't the judge, that he has given that right to me. Jesus is our judge. And that our, our access to eternity only comes through Jesus. The most offensive thing about Christianity is the exclusivity of how we get to heaven. One cannot call themselves a Christian unless you believe Jesus is the only way, the only truth. He is the only means to get to the Father. So here's the thing, if we trust in Jesus, he is not only the only key to our salvation and eternal life, he says earlier on in that passage I read that we will be amazed at the miraculous things that Jesus will do. I believe he's referring to the things he will do in our lives. The way I interpret that in my brain is there are some people, and there are many of you in this room, that if we would have seen you before Jesus Christ, we would not have even recognized you. I have people on my staff who were once Buddhists like Savud, I had people on my staff like Muhammad who was once, I don't know if you knew this, he was a Muslim imam once upon a time. And so you have people that you wouldn't have recognized these individuals. You had drug addicts, you had all kinds of, and many of you. And that Jesus will, will not only save us for eternity, but if we will give our lives to him, we will do a radical transformation now in our lives that will amaze people. Tuesday, we have a, a, a men's group that meets back here, and um, they, they all come in. I think their group starts around 10. And I'm in there getting a cup, of, uh, a cup of tea. I don't drink coffee. And I was in there getting a, a cup of green tea. It's what refined, you know, intellectual people drink green tea. And so I'm in there drinking, uh, I'm in there getting my green tea, you know, pretentiously dipping my green tea in the, in the cup. And um, one of the gentlemen from the small group walks in, and uh, he goes, hey, I ran into someone that knows you this week. And I was like, oh, yeah, tell me about it. And he goes, I was at this barbecue place in, in Smyrna and I was wearing an experienced music hat and I go up there and the owner of this barbecue place goes, is that Corey's church? And, and this gentleman goes, yeah, that's Corey's church. Do you know him? And he goes, used to do a lot of drugs with Corey. <laughs> so this guy, this, guy, this guy from our, the small group goes, he did a lot of drugs with you. And I was like, I know exactly who you're talking about, yes. And the whole point of that, though, is if you would have seen me before, tw uh, before 2002, I got saved in late 2002, if you would have seen me before that and seen me now, you, you wouldn't even recognize the difference. But that's not just me, man. God has miraculously flipped a lot of your lives upside down. And if we would just trust him, we will be amazed at what he can do with us. Amazed. Let's go back to trust, though. We have to trust Jesus regardless of what we see around us. You know, again, this is something I didn't think about at the other three sermons. 
If you watch the news enough, it's hard to trust that God's in control because we look out of control. But I know he's in control. I don't see it right now, but I know he is. Let me tell you how I personally got there and how a lot of you have probably gotten there. When we pray, talk to God, when we read the word of God, when we obey what the word of God and the conviction of the Holy Spirit does, we will see Jesus work in our life. We will, we will see Jesus work in our life. And what happens as we have a prayer life, as we read the word of God, as we see the fruit of the word of God happen in our life when we're obedient, what happens is God starts to establish a reputation with us. What I mean is this. So often it is so easy in this day and time to live in fear. I'm not, I'm not saying this boastfully, I, I don't live in fear. The reason why is I've had so many crazy things in my past happen and I have seen God take care of me over and over and over and over again. And now, now listen, when I look back on my life, when fear does start to creep up, I go, well, God, you've always brought me through. You have a reputation with me. I'm, I'm not gonna be afraid. You know, some of you in this life, you, you, you may, I don't know, there may be things you struggle with or questions that pop up, but when you go back and you look at this relationship you've had with Jesus, that reputation establishes trust, Amen. trust. Now, after saying that, let me ask you a very, very hard question. What if God never did anything good for you again? From this moment today, from the time you die or he comes back, whatever comes first, the older I get, I'm more like, come on, Jesus, come on back. But anyways, regardless of what that expanse of time was, let's say that Jesus never does anything good for you ever again. Would you still trust him? One of my favorite books in the Old Testament is a really small, obscure, weird book called Habakkuk. One of my favorite ones, short, three chapters. It's a conversation between Habakkuk and God, and he's having these trust issues, these faith issues, and they're talking back and forth. It's very, very interesting. And in the third chapter, Habakkuk finally kind of throws his hands up, and he says maybe one of my favorite passages in the Old Testament. He says, if the fig tree never blooms, if the vineyards never yield grapes, if the olive tree dies, still I will trust in the Lord. Still, if, if nothing good ever happens to me again until I die, Habakkuk says, I still trust. You know what? We need to ask ourselves, this is the stage of, of evolution that our Christianity should be at. Now, are we all there? Probably not. But we should be striving to evolve to be that deep of a Christian to where even if God never does a good thing for me ever again, I trust him, I trust him. In order to do that though, we have to be thinking about the eternal. We have to know in our minds that we are just temporary migrants passing through this life. This is not forever. There is a forever, but this isn't it. And so even if nothing good ever happens in this life, we know that if we continue to trust God, we have blessings for eternity. We need to be thinking that way. Have we chosen religion over relationship? Have we trusted in superstitious religious acts? Have we trusted, have we become superstitious? Do we think that we have to travel to a certain building to feel the presence of God? Do you, do you know why you feel the presence of God in this building? Not because of anything with this metal or wood. You feel the presence of God in this building because there are holy people in this building. The spirit of God does not honor brick and mortar. He doesn't occupy brick and mortar. That's Old Testament stuff. He occupies the human heart if we want him to. And so you don't have to travel somewhere to have God work in your life. You don't have to have a certain man or woman touch you. The same Holy Spirit that's in praise God doing amazing things in Asbury, the same Holy Spirit can do that in your home, in your personal life. You don't have to travel somewhere to have it done. A lot of that, quite frankly, hinges on superstition. And we lean more on that than we lean on prayer. We lean more on that than we lean on the wisdom of the word of God. And a lot of us, again, I'm not saying a lot of you, but a lot of Christians in general, they fail to see God working because God doesn't work according to their preferences. God can never work in a church that the people look like that, can never work in a place where the music sounds like that. I'm gonna flip it a little bit. There's a lot of people who say, I hate when people say, well, I go to a spirit-filled church. That's very arrogant, assuming that other churches do not have the spirit. 
There's a church of Christ down the road, one of my best friends in the world, David Young, who wrote a book on the Holy Spirit. There are church of Christers who, who don't have music in their services on the weekends, but man, there are some that speak in tongues and pray for the miraculous, and they do, they prophesy, and they do a mate in a church of Christ. But some of us step back and we go, well, that can't happen in that kind of church. It is. And we fail to see God doing amazing things because of our preferences, because of our denominational upbringing, and that is foolish. There's no denomination that sets the precedent of how God works. His word does that. That's what does that. So do we have a relationship with Jesus? This is for us. Do we have a relationship with Jesus or do we think if we just show up once a week and check that box, we're good? Again, listen, I believe you need to be in church. Church is important. But if you think just coming to church is gonna save your soul, it will not. You have to have a daily walk with Christ. A daily walk with Christ. Now let's talk about honor because we opened with it and we ended with it. Honor is something that is completely lost in our society. And I'm gonna tell you why. Many of you probably know this, but I'm gonna tell you why anyways. We live in such a dishonorable, disrespectful society. We do not respect each other. We do not honor each other. We do not treat each other kindly. We're rude. We cut line. We cut people off in traffic. We say awful things. We, 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 we gossip and we slander. We are dishonorable. Why? It is impossible. Listen, it is impossible to honor people made in the image of God if we do not honor God himself. It is impossible to honor the creation if we don't even believe that there's a creator. We live in a society where the growing population of atheists is growing more rapid than it ever has, and simultaneously, the growing population of people who not only who believe in our God, but in any God, is declining at the most it ever has. And do we not connect the dots that in the absence of a God, you know who becomes God? I become God. And if I'm God, why do I have to respect you? You have to respect me first. The world revolves around me. And this is the attitude of our society right now. So much so, we think we can change biology, we think we can change history, we think we can change everything, because why? I'm the center of the universe. In the absence of God, the next thing has to become God. It's me. And so we do not honor each other because we do not honor the absolute authority. We do not honor the creator. What does that even mean? What does it mean to honor God? To honor God is not only to acknowledge that he's God and hold him in the highest esteem. There's a lot of self-professing Christians that go, I believe in God, I know who the true God is, but that is not honoring God. Honoring God by definition is adhering to his standard of living. That is to honor God. It's not just to acknowledge that he is the creator, but we are to mirror how he lives to the best of our ability. We are to adhere to the teachings of Jesus, the principles of Jesus, the word of God, holiness, righteousness. And so we have to ask ourselves, do we even think that Jesus sets the standard of what our life should look like? Well, Corey, how do we figure it out? Go to Matthew chapter five, six, and seven. And we are to live like that. The Sermon on the Mount basically is Jesus telling humanity, this is how I want you to act. Now, of course, there's a lot more in the Bible that tells us how we are to live, but that is straight from the mouth of Jesus, pretty straightforward, Matthew chapter five, six, and seven. And so do our lives mirror, do we try to adhere to the life of Jesus? Here's the other side of that. If we do not humble ourselves and honor God, not just think of him in the highest esteem, but model the way we live after the way Jesus lives, if we don't do that in our relationship with him, we will not be honored. Again, we wonder why there's so much disrespect and aggression, why there's so much hostility in the world, because we're not doing it correctly. We're not honoring God first. It is only again when we honor God that we can honor people made in the image of God. And if we will not humble ourselves and honor God, we will not see honor amongst ourselves. And then we will not see honor in eternity. We will be dishonored for eternity. So again, the question that we must ask 
You know what's so ironic about American culture right now? Everyone is trying so hard to be different, they all end up just looking the same. Do you wanna know how to really stand out in American culture right now? Be an honorable person. Live like Jesus wants us to live. Go back and read the Sermon on the Mount. That's how we are supposed to look. That's how we are supposed to act. Can we say we are honorable people? Do we adhere our lives to the way Jesus wants us to live? Do we live with moral integrity? Well, Corey, what do you mean by moral integrity? Go back in the Old Testament to Exodus chapter 20 and read the Ten Commandments. Am I doing my best to honor these core principles of integrity? Am I doing these things? And then the last one, which is often the trickiest, but much, much easier if we have a good relationship with God. Do we love and respect other people? Do we honor others? Well, I'll respect them when they respect me. Not biblical. I'll love them if they love me. Not biblical. That we are to love and respect others regardless of what they reciprocate or don't reciprocate. All of this shapes us up to be an honorable person. Can we say that we're honorable people, honestly? Would you bow your heads with me, please? Hey, all joking aside and... and, and um, I don't ever say this to puff you guys up or, or, or make you arrogant. You are a phenomenal group. I, I, sometimes I preach these messages and I, I almost feel guilty because I'm like, man, I, I feel like this church does these things. And listen, I'm, I'm so proud of you for, for being the kind of example that you guys are. We just need to make sure we never forget because the world is only going to get uglier. And as the world gets uglier, we need to make sure that we don't get ugly, that we don't, we don't lose sight of these things. So your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed. If you're in this room and maybe you're not a believer, but you have questions, up here on my right, your left, Pastor Jonathan is up here. He does our discipleship. If you'd like to ask him any questions about Jesus, about the Bible, about why we do this whole church thing, please feel, feel free. We're not offended. We also have men and women on both sides of the stage that would love to pray with you if you need prayer for anything in your life, anything. And then the last thing is, all the way around this room where we see a lamp on a table and on the majority of the posts in the middle, there's bread and wine. And that represents the fact that Jesus eventually was nailed on a cross and gave up his body and blood for the forgiveness of our sins. That we can be saved, we can be forgiven. All of us are welcome to take the bread and the wine that remind us of this but we have, to, we have to make sure that we ask Jesus to forgive us before we do that, okay? Let me pray for you. Father God, we love you. Lord, tomorrow we will go back out into a world that is chaotic, aggressive, dishonorable in a lot of ways, Father. I pray, God, that as we go back out into the world that we, 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 we swim against the current, God, that we go against the grain, Lord, that as your word says, we become a truly peculiar people. And then I pray that we are honorable, that we honor you, we adhere to your teachings, that we set you up on the highest esteem, and that we love your creation, God, that is made in your image. Father, we love you, we thank you, protect my friends in this room until we meet again, God, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys, you're welcome to help yourself.